Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stacks Food, a show about food and innovation, and how everything bagels are the superior bagel. Mm-mm. Disagree. Plain or sesame? <laughs> you guys are both wrong. Welcome to the show, everyone. It shouldn't well- be a debate. It's true. <laughs> To be continued. Well, guys, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that when it comes to plant protein, did it seem like soybeans for a really long time was the it crop when it came to an alternative to meat? And now they're being replaced by things like pea protein. Yeah, for sure. It is. You're starting to see it rise as a one of the major commodity crops in the U.S. and across the globe. And that's largely being driven by the alternatives movement. And I think that you will only continue to see that grow over the next five to 10 years as a crop that more and more farmers are planting. And Steph, how much of that shift in consumer attitudes from one plant-based protein to another is based on scientists and farmers developing new food products? And how much of it is effective marketing and brand creation? You know, I think it's about 50-50 because it's so important whenever you have any sort of CPG consumer packaged good that the taste is there, right? And that's been a lot of the pushback in prior years of alternative ingredients. But you also have to get people to try the products first to taste them. And so that's why I say branding and marketing is a a huge part of this because you're getting people to try these new, effective, different tasting foods in the first place. And then you're getting the spread of, yeah, I had it. It's delicious. Everybody should try it. Yeah. And it seemed like with the case of pea protein, so many people hadn't even heard of it until Beyond Meat went public and mentioned how pea protein was a cornerstone ingredient in their product. And suddenly people are actually hearing about it for the first time so they can go out then and try it, right? Do we think that consumers care like where the protein comes from on the plant-based side? Or is it just like one of those labels or ingredients? I think they care because of perception of taste. I think consumers think that pea protein must taste like peas or something like that. And so I think until there is that shift in understanding of what the actual taste profile is, they're going to continue to have that thought when you have any new plant protein hit the market. Well, that brings us to the question of this show. As food trends and the ingredients needed to power them change, can a legacy company be a disruptor again? The company that we're talking about here is Purus. And even if you've never heard of them, chances are you may have a product containing one of their ingredients sitting in your fridge right now. Big food companies like Cargill also work with them. The company is a pretty big player in the plant protein market. It was founded by Jerry Lorenzen more than 35 years ago when he began growing soybeans. And now his son Tyler and daughter Nicole run it. Tyler Lorenzen and Nicole Atchison are our guests today, and they each have such interesting journeys back to their family business, and we will get into all of that. Brett, you know them pretty well as well. Yeah, you know what's funny is, you know, I never thought of them as a legacy business, and I think that a part of it is that all this publicity recently, when I first heard of them, I thought they were a startup. And I thought they were just like a a startup that was five to 10 years old that was on trend, raising all this venture capital, strategic and financial backed. And so it's really interesting to learn their story and their history that they are a bit of a legacy company. They have been around a long time and now they're rocking and rolling. And it's the 35 year overnight success story. (laughs) 
just like that, right? But first, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. We start off with a timely one given our guest today. Could Nebraska, which is known as a top producer of the nation's beef, be turning into a hub for plant protein? The UK's The Independent Publication spoke to farmers who were turning to growing peas to sell to suppliers like Puris. One farmer tells the outlet that peas leave more energy in the soil than it started with, and it makes the most of his crop rotation so he can grow it late in the year. Pierce tells the paper that it has increased production of peas in Nebraska by 81 percent since 2019 and expects to see more growth in the state. Brett and Steph, I used to live in Nebraska and I cannot imagine beef going away anytime soon as a staple of the economy or even culturally, but it does seem like including peas in a crop rotation makes economic sense for a lot of farmers. I think it definitely does. And I would actually reframe it. I don't know that the increase in pea production from a crop perspective actually decreases the beef production. I actually think it replaces soy or replaces other cover crops or late season crops that are going in. And so I don't know that you're actually going to see a decrease in traditional protein or beef production from some of the major beef producing states in the U.S. or even regions of the world, I think you might see an increase or a shift from one crop like, you know, a corn or cotton or soy to peas. It's interesting because in the article, that's exactly what it said. The farmer that it was quoting said after he harvests the peas, the cattle come in and graze on the land. So go figure, right? He's doing both. Yeah, I think we're still a ways out from traditional proteins, the reduction in farming of beef or poultry or traditional proteins. I think we're still a ways out from consumer adoption, driving enough demand shift from traditional to plant-based from that footprint perspective. Well, next, instant grocery delivery is a hot new area, especially since the pandemic. What we're talking about here is a subset of grocery delivery in which you can get deliveries as quickly as, get this, 15 minutes all the big food delivery players are trying to compete in this space, and DoorDash is now investing in a Berlin-based startup named Flink that aims to deliver supermarket food and essentials in less than 10 minutes. It's part of Flink's $750 million Series B round. Flink already is in 60 countries and has 10 million customers. It plans to use that money to grow its footprint. Brett, was this a good strategic move by DoorDash? I really want to see the unit economics behind delivery in 15 minutes and can they possibly make money? What's the long-term plan? If you were going to order something that you needed delivered in 15 minutes, that's a one-item thing, right? Yeah. And I've done that before in my area when DoorDash first started offering convenience. Things that I sometimes need in 15 minutes, for instance, paper towels, you know, things like that, or maybe diapers, maybe wipes, those kinds of things. What about you, Steph? Yeah, I would agree. It's things that I need at this moment and that I'm willing to pay extra for, which is not necessarily my list of things I need throughout the week that I can wait for. And so I think that the the point is, right, it's going to be really hard for unit economics to work for last mile or immediate delivery of things in the short run, because consumers are probably going to use that for really small total baskets, where I do think that grocery delivery and food delivery in general as a trend is really interesting and is it the future but how do you do it in a way that's profitable? Probably using robots and fully autonomous vehicles and more to come on that from the podcast. But I think that's probably the path of how you make it happen. That's still a little ways away, though, I think, for it to be a profitable segment. 
finally, a cream cheese shortage is causing an awful lot of buzz and hand-wringing in New York City, where bagels and cream cheese is the breakfast of choice for so many consumers. And Brett and Steph, by the time this episode airs, the shortage may already be over. But I think it speaks to a really important point that when these supply chain interruptions impact something that is both a staple and can't easily be replaced, that can lead to consumer anxiety and even outrage. Cream cheese or butter? Which way are we going here on this podcast? Butter. I do like butter too, but I like both. Aditi and I like everything the same. (laughs) But I do think this is all about logistics here, right? It's not supply. It's logistics. If I had my druthers, I'd probably have half of a bagel with cream cheese on it and half of my bagel with butter on it. And I get a little bit of both worlds. And that is really the way to go on an everything bagel is you get you know bites of both. What about the logistics versus supply chain, Brett? Oh, yeah, that piece. So I think the logistics versus the supply chain, I mean, it's probably at the end of the day, it probably does come down to logistics and intelligence within the logistics space. And so how do you know where you need more milk to produce cream cheese, which facilities and manufacturers and processors are going to be low? And so it's a really complicated problem that you're going to have to use multiple players in the supply chain to solve and have them communicating well. So in New York City, we need more cream cheese, but that's three months out. And so we need to get the milk to the processors in time who can then deliver it to the retailers in time. And you know, one thing that was really interesting in this article that I didn't know about before was that most cream cheese in New York, actually, they start off with Philadelphia cream cheese as the base, and then they add or, you know, do things to it. But the base for most cream cheeses is Philadelphia cream cheese. I had no idea. That's really cool. And I think that makes a lot of sense from like a white label perspective. If you think about it, there's a lot of equipment and manufacturing that you need to make a cream cheese well. And again, you have to be able to get the raw product, the milk to those facilities on time. So they have enough lead time to make the the cream cheese that will then be distributed to the end retailer. And then at your local bagel shop, they mix in whatever they want to make their, you know, their chive cream cheese or whatever, the brown sugar cinnamon cream cheese or whichever one's your favorite. <laughs> oh, that's going to spark another debate among us. I would say I like savory ones. I love chive cream cheese. Chive schmear is the best. I'm with you on that one. Or plain. Butter. <laughs> Half butter. I'm telling you all. <laughs> I'm going to try that. Number one. Bacon, egg, and cheese. <laughs> Number two, half of the bagel with cream cheese, half of the bagel with butter. And if you're going to go butter on a bagel, like go do it. Don't go light on the butter. Oh, Just like, no, no. Slather it on. I want it dripping. Butter, yeah. If I want yeah. butter, I want to taste the butter. <laughs> well, coming up, how a former professional athlete and a biomedical engineer are working together to create the next era in plant-based protein. From time to time, you may hear the phrase, the DNA of a company, to refer to the core values of a business. In the case of Pyrrhus, the term can be taken almost literally. That's because it was launched more than three and a half decades ago by Jerry Lorenzen, and now run by his two kids, Tyler and Nicole. The pair of siblings is steering the company into the next chapter of plant-based foods. While you may have never heard the name Pyrrhus before, there's a good chance the company's products are in some of the foods you eat, from beyond meat burgers to your favorite plant-based milks. Pyrrhus produces seeds that grow into soybeans and pea protein, plant-based crops that weren't exactly considered alternatives to meat back in 1985. That's when Jerry first came up with the idea of powering a plant protein revolution, 
decades before brands like Impossible Foods became household names. For that reason, Jerry's been called a visionary. And now his kids are picking up where he left off. Nicole tells us the seeds of innovation were planted early in their childhood. When I was two years old, our dad founded our business. So I don't really remember a time, and Tyler was just born. So we don't really remember a time where the business wasn't part of our life. So looking back, I think our childhood was a lot different from other people's. And we were involved in the business from a very, very young age. We were, I always joke, key employees number three and four, with our parents being number one and two. So even from a young age, we were involved and I think had that sense of ownership way back then. But what that meant at the time was a lot of early mornings, late nights, after school, weekends. And that was just how it was. It wasn't that we thought that was any different. We had never known any different. That's amazing. And so you had a real bird's eye view into what it was like to work for a startup. I mean, since childhood, Tyler, what was it like for you to be immersed in that life? Well, I'm the younger brother, as Nicole mentioned, which has come with its blessings for sure. I was always a step behind Nicole. So she was really the key employee. I was the assistant. And from my vantage point, it's impossible to relate what Purist has become to back then. And so looking back now, all I know is what we've been able to do and thinking of the commitment and the rigor, just the grit it took for our parents to stick with it, stick with the plan, because it was far from obvious back then. And to me, that is what is always so shocking because when you're living it, it's just normal. But then you fast forward to what happens, you're like, wow, that was crazy. My mom was our first breeder and working with my dad, of course, but he trained her how to do it. And she did it in our garden in our yard. So we grew up in the country. So we have a large yard and about a quarter of an acre of that was turned into a, what most people would call a garden, but we call it a test plot. So a breeding plot where we planted different varieties of soybeans and started the journey of creating crops with higher nutritional components. And we did that in our yard until it was big enough to move to a larger plot of land. It's humble beginnings, that's for sure. Your dad had this idea that the future was all about plant protein. That was back in when, 1985 or something? How did he get there? So our dad's name is Jerry Lorenzen, and he was a college football player, went to Iowa State, studied egg business, and grew up interning and working for Pioneer Seed Company. It was maybe it went by a different name back then. So he grew up in this environment thinking that he was going to get into this industry. And out of college, he was a district feed salesman, which if you're from Iowa, which we are, that means you sell feed to animals, farmers. And it's you know about their diet, it's about nutrition. And what he realized was, I'm selling all of this feed to animals. Then the animals eat the feed, which comes from soybeans, corn, etc. And then ultimately us humans eat the animals. And he just thought the system's inefficient. It won't scale to meet the needs of the future. You know, seven to 10 billion. You've heard these pitches so many times, but this is what he was talking about at length back when we were kids. And he called it protein independence. He said, there'll be a day where no longer people will grow plants to feed animals and we eat animals. People will grow plants that are theirs and they'll invent the best tasting plant-based foods regionally and not from big production hubs. And small stakeholders will be the feeders of the future and the makers that they are today. And, you know, as kids, you're like, what is this guy talking about? This makes no sense. And meanwhile, we're hoeing weeds and working like crazy. 
So it's not exactly a romantic thought back then. And now, of course, you fast forward to the president, and you're just like, this guy's a genius. And that's how he started. And I w- the business we run today is exactly the one he drew up on paper. It's your typical overnight success story, really, right? <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Overnight success. I love that. Like, you guys came out of nowhere. I'm like, oh, little do you know. <laughs> I want to take a quick step back and note that while a lot of people may not have heard of the name Pyrrhus, chances are they have eaten something that you guys have grown. So can you just high level describe what you do? I'll take this one. So Pyrrhus serves a multitude of customers throughout the value chain. So farmers know Pyrrhus as their seed provider. So we sell seed to hundreds of farmers across the United States and beyond at this point. What we do is we sell them seed, then we agree to buy what they grow back. So we're also their buyer. So that's how farmers know us. And then from there, once we buy it back, we graduate to what we call a maker. So then we turn those same seeds, peas, soybeans, into value-add ingredients and food that we sell to others. Largely, we sell these ingredients, pea proteins, starches, fibers, to consumer packaged good companies. So typical people you would know of from General Mills and Nestle and all the cool challenger brands that you can buy and Whole Foods and Target, of course, right now, even some Costco's. Nicole, you are a scientist. Tyler, your childhood ended up veering you towards sports. I'll start with Nicole. How did those roots of being interested in science, how were they planted in your childhood? If you knew our dad, you would make a lot of sense. He is a lifelong learner. He is a scientist. He's a businessman. He's a crop breeder. He's He just wants to understand how the world works and really believes that the future, there's so much unlimited potential of what we as people and the earth can do. And so he thinks without constraint. And so you grew up in this environment where there's just literally anything is possible. There was a period in my life where I was pretty convinced I was going to be the first female president. And then I went through a period of life where I was going to be the first female wide receiver in the NFL. And these were not jokes. I believed them because my dad was like, it's possible. You can do it if you work hard enough. And it was never, what could you do? It was, you can do anything. You just have to try really hard. I love that. You still can be. That's right. Now it's more of a, do you want to? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes way more sense. When you grow up in that, you can be anything. It's a lot because then it's like, wow, I have to do something meaningful and important. I think that that'll probably come back around later. It's like why we're here. But in the middle of my kind of life trajectory, I, I was in ninth grade and I was in science class and the TV cart rolled in. And that's the best day in science class when you get to watch a movie. But it wasn't a movie movie. It was a movie about someone who had lost their arm and they had a prosthetic. And as they thought about moving their arm, the way that the device was working, they could actually move their prosthetic arm. And at that moment in time, I was hook, line and sinker. I was like, that is amazing. Whatever I do in my life, I want to help people. And I really set on a journey to go into engineering. I wanted to make things. I wanted to build things. I wanted to like bring new technologies to people. Like dad said, anything's possible. So we can, <laughs> we can shoot for the moon. It's a cool big vision. And is that what brought you then back? Was that mission? Is that what brought you back into Pyrrhus? I had the opportunity to do what I you know, thought I wanted to do. And then I looked at what Tyler was doing at Pyrrhus. And I really just had a moment. I was like, if I'm going to work this hard, because I'm going to work hard no matter what, if I'm going to work this hard why wouldn't I work this hard for my family's business and try to really bring our dad's vision to reality? And it checks all the right value boxes. 
and it has the ability to make a big impact. Tyler, your childhood took you in a different direction as well. And in sports, can you talk a little bit about your football career? Well, I would be talking about my sport career in a way that's unfair to Nicole's because she's not only brilliant PhD genius, but she's also a star athlete. She was a D1 volleyball player, all state and everything. I think it was you know three or four sports. So my life has been looking. So the question is like, what do you bring to the table then? Huh? <laughs> I mean, Bingo. first of all, I'm not surprised about Nicole's success in both sports and in science and everything. Right, you're exactly <laughs> right. You're exactly right. Tyler, if you want to leave, <laughs> yeah. we're cool. Yeah, just Nicole, let's Nicole. just make it the Nicole show. Stop. Tyler is always bragging on me. It's because she, she doesn't brag on herself. So I will be her biggest cheerleader. And frankly speaking, that's what I was as a kid. I was her shadow. I wanted to be like my sister. She's light years ahead of me in many things. And what I tried to do was just emulate her. And that was very difficult for me in school. I was able to get good grades and, you know, hustle hard or whatever, but it was just more difficult than school came to Nicole. She never got a B. You know, I strive for Bs, which is fine. And sports was my thing. Long story short, you know, my dream was to play basketball, but I was better at football. And I ended up pursuing college football as a quarterback and kind of went all over the place, but ended up graduating from the University of Connecticut, which I studied business management. And I played for a second in the pros. And I always joke that NFL for me stood for not for long, but it really wasn't. And what I realized is sports can give you some experiences that you can lean on and leverage for life, no doubt. But one thing it doesn't do is prepare you to be ahead in terms of business and the pros in business are unbelievable. So once I I was back into the real world, so to say, I realized quick that I had a lot to learn and I needed to learn fast. And what I ended up doing is my dad needed help. And it was a typical founder journey that he was our best guy in a number of positions. And what I was good at is building teams. So one person I worked with was Nicole and I was like, she's an A player. So I'll try to hire her. So I've worked on her for like, three years and she finally made the jump and it was great but terrifying because the same intensity and feeling I had as a kid I had that next Monday on her first day and I was like (laughs) younger brother better show up every single day from here on out or older sister will let him know that is for sure and then you guys decided to be co-CEOs right what went into that decision is a little bit of how we have to structure the business to capitalize. So as the external environment sees purists as purists, which is very true, we handle multiple systems throughout the supply chain and we've built businesses around those. So Nicole runs our legacy business, our seed and egg tech, and also a lot of our future stuff. So plant-based foods, innovation, really cool things like that. And I run our JV with Cargill, which is we make pea protein, best in the world, largest capacity, and we do it from an amazing system end-to-end that's supported by the other side of the, the business. Nicole, you guys breed plants without using GMOs in your process. Can you explain to our audience what that means and why it's so important to you? Yeah, I think the plant breeding isn't something that people talk about a lot. So I think there's a lot of just uncertainty on what it even means. But really, the same way that we make children, we can create progeny in plants and it's around bringing different traits from different parents and bringing them together. And it's really as simple as that in crossbreeding is you literally take different varieties and you take the flowers and you basically do the action of a bee. 
is you pollinate from one variety to another. And then that little pod that comes out of it, that is the child. And it has some of the characteristics of the mom and some of the dad. And we do this with intention. And so you take the traits that you're looking for, high yield for the farmer or disease resistance, and you bring those traits into products that maybe work more for the food eater. So quality protein, low flavor, light color. And over time, you find these varieties that work for both. Can you talk a little bit about the role of data in plant breeding? Because I know historically plant breeding has taken years and years and years to actually find the right strain or the right type of plant that you're looking for. And how has that changed? You mentioned in 1985, you were starting a small plant and were breeding stuff. And I imagine that it has sped up And how has data and artificial intelligence played a role in that? Yeah, I think the role of data continues to evolve very rapidly. I can't think of the name of the law, but just the amount of data that you can put on a chip, it like doubles every single year. And that, I think it's Moore's Law. So that has really facilitated the large mass gathering of genomics and all of that information where you can not only have it, because having all that information or that data doesn't do any good if you can't analyze it because it's too much for a person to really go through. But now with AI and our computational speed and all of that, we can take that information across multiple species of crops, really map their entire genome, and people go in and figure out this gene does this thing. And so if you're looking for whatever that may be, or maybe it's you know a series of genes, you can go and you can actually screen crops to see if they have that marker. Pea proteins seem to, at least in the mass media, get a huge branding boost once Beyond Meat went public. How much of an inflection point was the rise of Beyond Meat for your business? The Beyond Meat IPO, to me, really captured the hearts and minds of consumers. It drove curiosity at scale, allowing QSRs like Burger King and Hardee's to offer these products for the first time to people to try them. And to change the association of veggie burger to plant-based meat, that happened over the past few years. And you're talking last year, $3 billion went to alternative protein funding. That's incredible. That's amazing. And Beyond Meat deserves a lot of credit for sparking that. We're hearing a lot about the next generation of alternative meat products, things like cultured meat or fermentation. Are those things a threat to your business? And what do you guys think is sort of the next frontier after pea protein? Well, I think generally new innovation in food that delivers nutrition in a sustainable manner is something that we get excited about. So we're you know, looking at all the things that are out there, what's going to scale How is that possible? And that there's room for a lot at the party because the population is growing, consumption of meat is growing. And we're really thinking, is all the new meat eaters in the world going to go to animal protein? Or may they just go to really quality plant-based protein? So I think in general, there's a lot of excitement about what's happening. And there's a lot of cool innovation. I think there's a lot yet to be proven at scale. And that's what I think the plant-based industry has really spearheaded is you can make this, you can make it taste great, and you can make it at scale. Our kids, my kids, they don't really even understand it, the difference. I told them that I don't eat meat, and they said, yes, you do. You eat beyond meat. I was like, okay, true. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. A fun question. I heard you guys say on a different platform that just like a lot of families, you argue you don't see a lot of companies led by brothers and sisters, right, together. What kinds of things do you guys argue about? And how do you resolve those conflicts? Everything. We argue about everything. And 
I love it. So we have a core value of openness at Purus, and it's one that it's, you know, learn from one another, but you also have to speak what you think. You have to say what's on your mind. You have to give your opinion. And Nicole and I are not shy about that. And it breeds a culture where a lot of people were arguing or debating and trying to get to better answers and outcomes. And that starts with trust. And I trust my sister so much. It's so easy for us to be authentic and real. We're trying as hard as we can to create a culture where everyone at Pierce feels the same way. And we're well on our way, that's for sure. What's the best way to get underneath each other's skin is kind of what I'm wondering. Like, you know, Tyler, what do you want to do when you want to like poke at Nicole and Nicole, what do you, you know, how do you get under his skin? Brett, I've been a younger brother my entire life. I have this Me down too. to a science. Usually anything in the early AM, if I'm too joyous and delightful, Nicole is puzzled <laughs> and rattled and just wants me to leave. So I try to manage up as hard as I can all the time with Nicole. And it's, look, I can get under Nicole's skin in about 30 seconds. And my brother-in-law, Nicole's husband, is even better at it than I am. So when we're together, it's just (laughs) full on. I think the key takeaway there is uh, apparently I'm easily rattled. (laughs) I think that, honestly, Tyler and I have a very complementary skill sets where, you know, I am analytical. I really think about, you know, the now and execution. Tyler is an inspiring leader and we didn't talk about it, but coming through sports and football and being a quarterback, being a captain, the ability to rally people around a vision is not easy. And it's not something that just comes naturally to everyone. And it I believe it comes naturally to him. A lot of people probably have watched the TV show Succession. It does not sound like you have a lot of the drama that they might show on that show. How has that been? What's it been like transitioning from your father and parents starting the company to you two? And also there's some crazy statistics out there about how many companies fail in that transition process. What has happened? How have you enabled it to make sure that that doesn't happen to you all? Well, first of all, Brett, I just got married to Alyssa. She accepted my ask and we were watching Succession and I I was like, look, it's nothing like this. This is like so crazy. Like (laughs) nothing like this happens up here. For us, we've watched it grow and materialize. And our dad preached that it's not always about just getting the outcome, that aspiring for something that's bigger than maybe you'll ever achieve is all the fun. And that is what we aim to do. All right, y'all. This is time for the pressure cooker, the most difficult of all the rounds that we do here. We're going to start off with the easy one. Both of you can answer this one. You mentioned that you argue all the time. Who wins the arguments? Nicole. Tyler. Ah, disagreement right out of the gate. See, we do have drama like they do in succession. We were all lied to a minute ago. All right. The siblings for a long time, since you've known each other your whole lives, describe your sibling in one word. Intense. Genius. We talked a little bit about the alternative protein markets today. What's going to be a bigger market opportunity, cell-based or plant-based alternative proteins? Plant-based. Plant-based. What is your current favorite product on the market that has purest protein in it? Don't know what we can share. That's a hard one, Brett. Purest unflavored pea protein sold on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Very diplomatic. Mine is one of the plant-based milks on the market. Tyler, this one's for you specifically. Have you overcome little brother syndrome yet? No. And we're going to end on one more. Which one of you would make a better president of the United States of America? Tyler. Tyler? Nicole. 
All right, you all survived a lightning round, and you did it with pretty much just one-word answers, which is actually very rare. I love it. This is fun. This is fun. You guys are good hosts. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today, I'm here with John, CEO and co-founder of Culture Decadence. Hey, John, what problem are you solving at Culture Decadence? So Culture Decadence, we are building the future of food using cell culture, making meat right from animal cells without having to harvest them in the wild. And this is going to help us solve the problem. How do we feed billions and billions of people on this planet? How do we do it in a safe and sustainable way? That's cool. So there's a lot of noise around the space right now. How are you solving it? What makes you guys special? Yeah, so what we're doing that's different is, one, we're focusing on seafood, which we feel is an underserved area of this space. Two, we are specifically targeting crustaceans. And within that, our first products that we're developing are lobster-based. And three, we're taking it from an approach that is really focused in on using the cells as the product. So this isn't a plant-based solution like there are other companies working on. This is really the, the real cells of lobster. How's it taste? It tastes like lobster. <laughs> but then again, it is, right? So the, the cells are the same thing. Just instead of growing in the ocean, they're growing in a bioreactor. Yeah, it's got to taste great. What's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? We are starting with uh, food-based products, and we want to do all types of seafood. Um, and then ultimately think about all the other products that come off of animals that are used in non-food applications, but that it would be great if we could make them using cell culture technology. Today I'm here with Dennis, CEO and co-founder of X Robotics. Dennis, what problem are you solving? We're creating affordable robotics for the restaurants and increasing efficiency there. The biggest problem, which is affects of both sides right now, the customer and restaurant owners, it's a labor shortage and increasing ingredient price which is for the customer, it's effects in, uh, in terms of service, long lines, restaurants usually closing after 9 p.m. or like that. Mm-hmm. For the owner, the labor, two times more expensive. That's crazy. Yeah, and I've definitely noticed restaurants like that I like haven't been open as long as I've wanted them to be. How are you solving the problem? Yes, we created the affordable uh, robotic solution, which is really easy to install in restaurant like within 15 minutes. And it's immediately increased the profits, save a lot of time for that, which is uh, give them more opportunity to hire more expensive people and uh, increase their efficiency. What do your robots do? Like just a robot that does the whole thing, but what's your robot actually do? Yeah, we start from the pizzerias, which is most large market in the QSR. And uh, our robot just put toppings on the pizza, which is almost 90% uh, what people do in the restaurant in pizzerias. Got it. So you have a robot that helps make pizzerias more efficient and effective through toppings. And what's your big vision? Where are you going with this thing? We try to, with robotics, it's our vision, just scale fast and deliver this value as many restaurants as possible. So going back to the original question, 
can a legacy company be a disruptor again? What happens, guys, when pea protein goes out of fashion? Hopefully the startup, or in this case, the 35-year-old overnight success story is nimble and innovative enough to continue to move with the trends. And so right now, pea protein is super hot. And just from talking to them, you hear how much R&D they're doing, how much work they're doing to be on top of the next trend and to be the leader for that next trend. And that's how they prevent getting left in the dust and having that nimbleness and ability to move quickly. Steph, do you think they can pivot to the next big thing once they figure out what that is? Absolutely. I think a lot of it has to do with understanding infrastructure and how to turn plants into protein. There are certain elements of the process, from my understanding, that are similar no matter the plant. And so understanding some of that, understanding your supply chain, having those farmers available is huge and they'll be able to pivot. It'll be interesting to keep going back to them over the next few years. For sure. And they're fun. Obviously fun people. They were. It was such a great conversation. We'll see you guys here back next week. 